1 John chapter 2. I'm just going to read three verses, verse 15 to verse 17. John writes, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abides forever. Let's pray once more. Father, we thank you for inspiring these special words through the Apostle John. And Lord, we know that your word, it speaks wisdom that is beyond the heavens, above the clouds. And we ask, Lord, that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit to understand your word this morning. Fill us with your spirit to hear what you're saying in this little passage. And we glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most common lines of defense for those who don't want to believe in God and believe in the Bible in particular <clears throat> is that the Bible is full of contradictions. Have you ever heard that before from someone? Maybe you're sharing the gospel with somebody. Maybe you're sharing Jesus with someone or reading a verse. And one of the lines of defense, and I say it's a line of defense, it's not an attack. It's a line of defense because the Bible's coming to them. God's word's coming to them. The truth of the gospel's coming to them. And they say, I know, the Bible's full of contradictions. That's one of their arguments. Of course, uh, every Bible contradiction I've ever encountered is cleared up by study. Would you look closer at what the text is actually saying? On campus, there's always students who come with Bible contradictions, but it's just very simple. Like, you just, let's look at it a little bit more close. Let's see what it really says. And it clears up. Some of the most famous uh, Bible, alleged Bible contradictions is Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. They contradict each other. So when, the, when the Moses began to write Genesis, right in the first two chapters, he, he uh, contradicted himself. But of course, um, if you look closer at the text, you understand that in Genesis chapter 1, Moses is simply, by inspiration, giving an overview of creation. In chapter 2, he's just looking with more detail at the creation of man and what God did with man. So there's no contradiction there. It's, even, it's silly to think that Moses would make that kind of a mistake in the first two chapters in the Bible. Or another famous one is Paul's conversion story. There's three times in the book of Acts where Paul shares his conversion story when the Lord Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. <clears throat> and uh, there's, there's an alleged discrepancy in two of them. And one, he says that the people around me they uh, didn't hear any voice. And then in the other one, he says they, they heard the voice. So, of course, what is it? Is it a contradiction? And it's a famous one, a common one. But, of course, when you look at the Greek, you understand there's a difference in the, even the way Paul says that. And in one, he's saying that they heard an audible voice, and the other, they didn't understand what that voice was, the, what it was saying. The Greek means that they couldn't distinguish what the voice was saying. They couldn't understand his voice. 
So the, the people around him heard, heard the Lord speaking to Paul, but they didn't know what uh, the Lord was saying to Paul. Paul, why do, you, why do you persecute me? So to reject the Bible because of alleged contradictions like this, and many people do. They say, ah, the Bible is just, it's not God's word because it's full of these contradictions. To reject the Bible on that kind of a basis and to miss the content of what the Bible is saying is foolishness. Amen? <clears throat> well, in 1 John chapter 2.15, it may seem like we have a strange contradiction. One pastor has said, this is the love that God hates. This is the love that God hates. And it seems like a strange contradiction because in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John the Apostle writes, love not the world. Love not the world. And yet in John 3.16, very famous, John also wrote, uh, quoting Jesus, for God so loved the world. So do we have God being a hypocrite? Do we have God telling us to do something, not to do something that he himself did? Right? He tells us to love not the world. And yet he himself we find loving the world. Is that a contradiction? That would probably be a contradiction in some people's minds. On the surface, yeah, it seems that way. But when we look deeper at what this means, we see that John is talking about something entirely different altogether. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does it mean to love the world? What does it mean to love not the world? In John 3.16 and 1 John 2.15. But just before we do that, I want to make this comment. That John is not writing this passage to love not the world to Christians because Christians can and shouldn't love the world. Okay? Let me say that again. John is not writing this passage, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, to Christians because Christians can and shouldn't love the world. Because he says here, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the Father isn't in, even in you. That's, that's shorthand for meaning you're not even of God if you do that. It's an impossibility. It's impossible for a Christian to love the world. If a Christian could love the world, that Christian wouldn't even be a Christian. That'd be an oxymoron. And then you might ask, well, that's awful strange why he'd command Christians not to love the world then, right? Why would he command us to do something that's impossible for us to do? Well, we've already seen him do that in verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. So there he tells you to do something that is already true in you. So it's not unusual in the New Testament for the apostles to exhort us to do things that he knows that if we're Christians, we've already done. Or to exhort us not to do things that he knows if we're Christians, we've already not done. In a sense, the apostles discuss these things with the Christians they explain them, they talk about them, and they do exhort them in order to weed out who is a Christian and who isn't, and in order to give us greater light on the matter as well. So we need to learn to think this way, that just because the New Testament may command us to do something, it doesn't mean that, oh shoot, it's commanded me to do something, that means I'm in big trouble, or this must not be true for me, or this is a threat, this is a warning, when actually 
the Bible, when it commands us to do something at the same time, it tells us we've done it if we're truly in him. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, if we look at the Greek language in John 3.16 and 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we don't find any difference. So we're not going to find any help there. Because in John 3.16 it says, Agape, not the cosmos. Or in John 3.16 it says, For God agaped the cosmos. For God so agaped the cosmos that he gave his only begotten son. We're in 1 John chapter 2.15 it says, Don't agape the cosmos. Don't do it. <laughs> okay? So we're not going to find any help in the Greek when we look. <clears throat> well, this morning I think it would be helpful if we talked about agape and we defined what agape is. Agape is one of the Greek words in the New Testament that we translate into the word love. And you've probably heard the word many times if you've gone to church for any duration of time. The word agape. But what does the word agape mean? What does agape mean? Unconditional love, that's a common definition of agape. It's true, but it's deficient. It's a true definition. It's a, it's a true thing about agape love. Agape love is unconditional. That's true also. That's also true. Brotherly love? I don't think that's, that's agape. All those are true, but they're still deficient because they're not touching the heart of what agape really is. They're describing true things about agape, but they're not defining agape. To be completely given over to? Um, I would not probably define it that way. Perfect love? Hmm. Um, it, would, it could involve that. Agape could involve that. It definitely could involve that. Um, there's, it's often said that there's three Greek words for love in the New Testament. There's actually only two. The, the, the word love in the New Testament, there's only two Greek words. Some will say that it's agape, phileo, and eros. The eros never appears in the New Testament. It's only agape and phileo that we have to do it with in the New Testament. And by seeing the difference between agape and phileo, and phileo is the other Greek word that is translated love in the New Testament, by seeing the difference, by seeing the contrast of these two, it'll help us understand what agape is. Agape is used hundreds of times in the New Testament. Phileo is used about 30 times in the New Testament. And eros, zero. Now what is phileo? Phileo has to do with the pleasure that you derive from something. Phileo has to do with... When it, it, it's actually... When we use the word in, in English, love, we usually mean phileo. I love that piece of music. I love that band. Right? I love that band. What, what do we mean by that when we say that? You enjoy it. Yes, phileo is the enjoyment you get of some object. And you, have, you can have really strong affection for something because of the enjoyment that you get. Maybe it's a sports team. Maybe you have, you don all the gear, you go to every game, you put posters on your wall, and you get really angry when people bad talk about your sports team. You have phileo for your sports team. 
You enjoy your team. You have affection for your team. It's a strong bond. That's phileo. You can phileo people as well. You can, you can love another person in that way. And I just love Kim. Kim is great. When I say that, I mean she as a person I really like. I strongly like. There's things about her that I get much enjoyment about. I phileo. I love her. I phileo her. But coming back to what we say when we say I love music, I love that piece, I love that song. We don't mean when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, doesn't envy, isn't rude. You're not saying, I'm, I'm so kind to that song, right? You're not saying that, right? You're not talking about agape at all. When you say, I love that song, you're talking about phileo. The pleasure that the object gives you, the enjoyment that the object gives you. And by seeing the difference there, we understand what agape is. Agape is not the pleasure an object gives you, but it is the love that you give to the object of that love. In fact, it has nothing to do with the pleasure that you get from that object whatsoever. Agape is defined as thoughtful, deliberate, unselfish concern for another. One of the differences between phileo and agape is agape is volitional, whereas phileo, you can fall in it. You could say, I fell in love. You can't say you fell in agape. You can't do that. No one falls in agape. Agape is something that you, you grow in. Because agape is when you look at an object or a person and you consider it and you seek the good of that object in an unselfish way, not because of what pleasure it brings you. Now, it might. You can both agape and phileo something at the same time. You can do that. In fact, in the Bible, it says God agapes us, God phileos the Christians. It says that God, uh, that we agape God and we also phileo God and Jesus as well. So you can do both at the same time. It's not one or the other. And I don't want in any way to suggest that phileo is wrong or bad in any way. There's no wrong in phileo. You can really enjoy something or someone. But if that's all you have for that, then you only have one aspect of love. If I say, I love Tom, I can mean that in two totally different ways. I can mean that in agape or phileo, or both. I could say, I love Tom. What do I mean by that? I really take a lot of pleasure out of Tom. Or I could say, I love Tom, meaning I give love to Tom. I give kindness to him. And in 1 Corinthians 13, agape isn't merely just doing things for another person. Because it starts by saying, well, if you give all your money to the poor and you don't have agape, then you're nothing. So don't get, don't get the idea that agape is just doing things for other people. Agape is that special consideration, the why you do things for other people. You look, at, you look at Ailey, and you consider him, and you care for him, and you have compassion on him, and you do things for him out of that motivation. That's agape. It's not just doing things for Ailey. It's why you do it. You love him, and so you do it. 
Because agape, we're called to do that. We're called to agape one another. There's no excuses. You can't say, well, I don't like that person. You can't say, well, I don't have any feelings for that person. Or they don't do anything for me. That's not agape. Agape has nothing to do with what pleasure you draw out of another person. Agape is completely selfless, one-way consideration for another person and seeking their good. Agape, however, does beget phileo because when you start agaping someone, they're going to start phileoing you, <laughs> right? <clears throat> marriage, a, a healthy marriage has both agape and phileo. But if there isn't phileo, you can still agape. See, the thing about agape is there's no, there's no excuses not to do it. Because there's no, it's not conditional, like Alan said, it's unconditional. <clears throat> so it's very important that we distinguish between this in our minds, that in the scripture, there's this giving love, and then there's this love that just kind of takes. And neither of them are wrong or bad. But let's distinguish in our own minds the difference between agape and phileo. And I think it's very helpful for us, because in, in our own English language, we don't distinguish it, we distinguish it, and I think, therefore, we don't really distinguish it in our minds either. We think, my God calls me to love that person? Man, that's going to be really tough because that means i got to like him and all these things. That's not really what God is saying. He's saying you consider that person and you seek that person's good. And when you consider them, it's kindness and patience and not rudeness that will come out of you when you consider them. So it's really important that we understand this. We see it very clearly distinguished in John 21 when Peter and Jesus, when Jesus is talking to Peter, and you remember that Peter denied the Lord three times. Remember that, that story after Jesus rose from the dead when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times, remember that? <clears throat> we miss the whole thing if we don't read it in Greek. Because in the story, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. <clears throat> and he says the second time, Peter, do you agape me? And he says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And then the third time, Jesus says, Peter, <clears throat> do you phileo me? And he says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. <laughs> Interesting. <clears throat> what is he saying? You know, in some circumstances... Phileo is actually the more uh, <clears throat> appropriate word. Depends on the context, of course. But there, Peter had denied the Lord three times. Peter had said, even if everyone else denies you, I won't. In a sense, Peter was saying, I'm going to agape you, Lord. That's what he's saying to Jesus. I'm going to consider you. I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to never let you go. It's a giving, he's saying. I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give to you, Jesus, on that night. And so when he fails completely, Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? <laughs> and I think Peter realized, you know what? I'm a failure, but I love you, Jesus. You're the best. <laughs> You're the greatest because you have loved me and forgiven me. I have such a strong affection for you. And that was the appropriate word, I believe. 
because Jesus wasn't saying, what are you going to do for me, Peter? He was pointing out that it's what I've done for you, Peter, that's really important. Do you phileo me? Yes, Lord, I phileo you. I love you. And as Christians, we phileo Jesus. We love him. We think he's the greatest. Like as we sang in that song, you're the best. You're awesome because you died for me. And you forgave me of all my sins. That's not us being kind to Jesus. That's not us being patient to Jesus. That's us just simply enjoying and taking full pleasure in him and joy in what he's done for us. And that was what Jesus was highlighting to Peter that night. It's not so much what you do for me. It's what I've done for you. You take joy in that. But for each other, agape. John 3.16, for God so agape the world. Now, there was a lot about the world that God didn't like. Okay? It wasn't saying that God so phileoed the world. That God just thought the world was the bee's knees and the best things and sliced bread. There's a lot of things about you God didn't like. But God considered you and loved you and wanted your best and your good. He didn't want you to perish because he loved you. God so agape you. He so thoughtfully, deliberately loved you. In an unselfish concern, he sent his only begotten son to die for all your sins so you could be not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a beautiful thing to know that God agapes you. And if God agapes you, brothers and sisters, what's it, who can be against you? If God the Almighty One is for you, who can be against you? And if His for you-ness isn't dependent upon your obedience or performance, who can be against you? Because agape is unconditional. So we just simply believe the love that God has for us in Christ. Amen? What about the cosmos? The other word, cosmos. For God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only begotten son. Or love not the cosmos. Well, it's very clear in scripture that this word cosmos, which is translated into the word world, is used differently in scripture. And this is the difference so the word agape is the same in John 3.16 and 1.2.15, but the meaning of the word cosmos is different. And there's three differences, and it's very clear which, which sense John is using the word cosmos, or the word world. The first one is that when the word world is used in the scripture, it's talking about the universe. It's talking about the universe that God created. Jesus, through him, the entire world was made. And in no sense is John saying, don't love it. Don't love the universe. He's not saying that in 1 John chapter 2.15. He's not saying don't love the universe. In fact, the Bible never tells us to not do that. Um, the universe is not evil. The universe is not sinful. Some people would take this text, and they have in the past, and they do today. They take this text to mean everything in the physical universe is evil. It's time for us to go and become monks, remove ourselves from as much as we possibly can, live in seclusion and isolation, beat our bodies because they're bad, wear hairy shirts, 
John is not telling us to do this. The biblical way of thinking about the world is that the world is good. It's fallen, yes, but it's good. And through it, we see the goodness of God and the wisdom of God and the power of God. The second way that the world is used is in the sense of all of mankind. The whole world has gone after Jesus, the Pharisees said. What they mean is, they were using hyperbole, but they're referring to mankind, people, the world. And when it says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, that's the meaning, that's the sense. God so loved, not the universe, but God so loved the world of people, people, that he gave his only begotten son for them. And here in John, 1 John 2.15, John is not writing to the Christians and saying, don't love people, okay? Do not agape mankind. He's not saying that. And it's very clear what he means is this. And you can see it because in 15, 16, and 17, you see an impersonal thing. All that is in the world, the, love, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. The world is also used in Scripture as a system. A system in which men are involved in. And John means it in this sense. Merrill F. Unger, in his Unger's Bible Handbook, he says, the world system, this is the world system under which Satan has organized fallen mankind upon his God-opposing principles of pride, selfishness, and ambition. Lawrence Richards, another Bible teacher, he says, the world system is a dark system operating on basic principles that are not of God. W. Hal Harris, he's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, writes, the cosmos represents the world of humanity as lost, alienated, and separated from its creator and in opposition to him, under the control of the enemy, and to be overcome by the Christian, just as it was overcome by Jesus himself. And the Greek scholar Thayer, he says that it's hostile to the cause of Christ. So you'll notice this as you read the New Testament, that sometimes the, world, that the, the word world is used in this sense. It's not talking about mankind, but it's talking about this system that mankind is a part of. It says the whole world lies in the power of the devil, and it's speaking of his reign and his government and his administration over people. The whole world lies in wickedness. In Galatians, it's written that Jesus gave himself to deliver us from the present evil world. Not from mankind, not from the universe, but from this system of life under Satan that is under condemnation from God. <clears throat> and that is why it's impossible to be a Christian and love the world. How can a Christian love something that's hostile to Christ? If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. If you love the world, you wouldn't believe on Jesus Christ. If you've believed on Christ, it's because you haven't loved the world or you've overcome the world. What's Satan's key tactic? We've talked about this before. What is Satan's number one key tactic? What's that? He uses lies, but what does he use lies to get us to do? What's Satan's number one desire for your life? What's that? 
Not sin. Not sin. Unbelief. Unbelief in who? Unbelief in God and unbelief in the gospel. Unbelief in Jesus and him crucified. That's Satan's main tactic. Satan knows that if a Christian sins, he can't condemn that Christian. He'll try, but he can't. He fails. The only thing Satan can do is get a person to try to not to try to get a person to not believe on Christ and to take his eyes off of the truth of what Jesus has done for him in Christ. Let's look at just a few scriptures. 1 John chapter 4. This will show you that to be a Christian means to have overcome this system. If you're a Christian, if you've believed, then you have overcome this system. 1 John 4, verse 4 and 5. It says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. I'll read verse 6 as well. We are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You see? So if you're of God, you've overcome that whole world system. If you're of God, you hear the gospel and you believe it. If you're not of God, then you will speak the things of the world and you'll hear the things of the world only, which of course are not the gospel at all. Look at 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5. So if you have believed, you've overcome. And if you believe, you will overcome, according to 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So it's very simple that if you have believed, then you have overcome that world system. Go to John, the Gospel of John. Remember that John in his epistle just said, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In John chapter 5, let's listen to what Jesus says about that. John 5, verse 38, starting in verse 38. And this also is echoed in 1 John. And you have not his word abiding in you. For whom he has sent, him you believe not. If you, would, if you don't believe in Jesus and the gospel, it's because you don't have the word of God abiding in you. We've heard that already in 1 John. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know that you... I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe which receive honor one from another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? So here again, there's an antithesis. For those who don't believe in Christ, he has a lot to say about them. The word of God's not in you. The love of God's not in you. You're part of this world system. You hear of your own. You accept your own. If somebody comes of the world, you'll accept him. But when someone comes from heaven speaking the truth about God, the truth about life and death, the truth about righteousness, 
You don't accept them. Verse, uh, chapter 15 in John. Last text before we go back to 1 John. <clears throat> and this is highlighting the fact that the world's not going to love you. So John says, don't love the world, and they sure ain't going to love you either. 1 John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The world hates Jesus. So if you're of the world, you're not a Christian. It's that simple. You can't be a Christian and love the world. It's impossible. And of course, what does it mean to hate Jesus? Does it just mean, I just hate that guy. I hate the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Is that what it is? It's not that. It's not that. It's, it's hating Jesus for what he represents and what he has done and what he has said about himself and about life. There's a lot of people who are of the world that claim to love Jesus. There's a lot of people who are of the world that go to churches and they sing songs about Jesus. But when it comes down to it, they really do hate Jesus and they don't have faith in the Jesus of the Bible. Because their Jesus isn't the kind of Jesus that the Bible talks about, who died on the cross for our sins so that we could be accepted by grace. Their Jesus is the kind that condones them in their unrighteousness and says, oh yeah, you're really a good person. They love Jesus like that. Any Jesus that comes along and says, yeah, you're not perfect, but you're pretty good and you'll be acceptable that way. Jesus says in John 7 that the reason why the world hates him so much is because he tells them that their deeds are evil. He just calls a spade a spade. He says, being religious doesn't make you righteous. What? Doing good deeds. You still fall short of the glory of God. I need to die for you. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood or else there's no life in you. What? So, it's, <clears throat> it's Jesus as the one who exposes our unrighteousness and by his cross declares that there is no righteousness except through him that the world hates. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So there's this antithesis and this contrast. Christians don't love the world, and the world don't love Christians. <laughs> okay? And that doesn't mean you don't love the people. And that doesn't mean that non-Christians can't be nice to you. What it means is they are hostile to your principles, and you're hostile to theirs. And there's no love there whatsoever. So John succinctly and comprehensively sums up what is in the world in verse 16. <clears throat> I'll just briefly mention these three points. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the principles of the world that the Christian has been delivered from, overcome. And they're all essentially saying the same thing. The lust of the flesh is an expression used in the New Testament. It doesn't mean your physical desires, as some would think. Because though the word flesh, we think that means, so well, that's my physical body and my desires of my physical body. 
But flesh, as we know, means it's a theological term that means our human power and our human ability. And it's expressed in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, that the flesh lusts against the spirit. Galatians 5, 17. That's what the flesh lusts. That's the lust of the flesh. It's against the spirit. It desires not what the spirit says and desires. That's the lust of the flesh. So the spirit, of course, is the power of God. The spirit is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the things of the spirit, the gospel, salvation through grace. And the flesh hates that. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit desires against the flesh. They're contrary one to another. And in, in Galatia, the, the professed believers there were desiring to go back under the law. They were desiring to be right through what they did. That was the lust of the flesh. You understand that? It's very important that we don't just jump to a conclusion when we read that in Scripture. Lust of the flesh is desiring the opposite of the Spirit and what the Spirit says, not your physical desires. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says we all, every one of us, spent our time, before we were Christians, in the lust of our flesh. That includes the most strict religious person that you know. So it's not talking about just going out and, and fornicating or something like that. The most strict religious pious person is operating in the lust of the flesh. That's the principle of the world. I want to make it. I want to do it. I want to overcome of my own strength so I can receive glory because I did it. I want what I do to count. I want God to look at me and accept me on the basis of who I am and what I've done. That's the desire of the flesh. And the lust of the eyes. I do not believe also that this is referring to like what Jesus would say, looking with lust upon a woman. I don't believe, I think that's missing the whole point. Therefore, if anyone looks with lust, you're not a Christian. But rather, I believe that what John is alluding to here, though it's like physical or looking with lust in adultery, he's referring to what the prophet Ezekiel talked about. Many times in the book of Ezekiel, if you're familiar with it, Ezekiel constantly called the people out that they lifted up their eyes to vanity and to idols. And God was, dis was upset that they would always lust after other gods. They desire other gods. They desire these idols of the other nations and they want them. I, I believe this is referring to the worship of false gods that are attractive to us in our flesh. Why would we be attracted to a false god? Because a false god tells us what we want to hear. A false god tells us that, you know, you're a really great person. And I think you're doing a great job. And when you die, you'll be right with me. Because you've been so good and you've done all the rules. Here's the rules that you're supposed to keep. Oh yeah, thank you God. Thank you God for confirming me in my self-righteousness. Because I think the three things together are basically one. The pride of life also 
in the Greek, it's braggardosio, or braggardios. What do you call this? Um, What's that? Braggadocious, yeah. The Greek is, it's empty bragging. It's not pride in the Greek. The word isn't pride. It's empty bragging. It's boasting that you're something when you're not. Thayer says it's, listen to what Thayer says here, an insolent and empty assurance which trusts in its own power and resources. Interesting. It's bragging about who you are and what you've done, even though it's empty. There's, no, there's nothing to it. That's of the world. The world is all about saying, look who I am and look what I've done, when really there's nothing actually there. It's all an illusion. It's all a lie. And the word life here is not zoe, the common word in the Greek for life, but it's bios. There's a difference between this, bios and zoe. Zoe means life is the opposite of death. I have life because I'm not dead. Bios is referring to your life in its period and its manner, which is where we get the word biography. You know, the word biography comes from the word bios. And a biography doesn't just say so-and-so lived, so-and-so had life, so-and-so had Zoe, biography is, this is what their life was like. It was this long, and this is what they did. So really what John is saying here, bragging about your biography. That's, that's, the, that's of the world. You have empty bragging, empty assurance in your life. What you've done, who you are, that's not of the Father, but it's of the world. It's not of the truth of God, but it's of the lie of Satan. The lie of Satan. To take you away from the truth and away from Christ. And John says in verse 17, the world passes away. The world passes away and the desires thereof. And look up at verse 8 once more. John also uses the exact same word. He says the darkness passes away in verse 8. The darkness passes away. In the King James, it says the darkness is past. But in the Greek, it's, it passes away. It hasn't, hasn't gone yet, but it is in the process of passing away. Every night is passing away. Even though it's still dark out, it's on the way out. And this is what he's saying. The world hasn't gone yet, but the world is on the way out. The darkness is a synonym for the world. It hasn't gone yet. The world is still in darkness, but that darkness is passing away and eventually it will be gone. So he, he actually calls the world a synonym for darkness here. So, of course, the opposite of the world would be light and being in the light. And, of course, if you're a Christian, you're in the light, and if you're not in the light, you're not a Christian. If you're not in the truth, you're not a Christian. But a, as contrasting with this, you could sum it all by saying it th- like this. The opposite of loving the world is doing the will of the Father. To do the will of the Father is to not love the world. And what is the will of the Father? We should all know by now. Is the will of the Father to keep the law? No, because if that's the case, no one's done the will of the Father, right? But the will of the Father, what God the Father and it's, and it's interesting that he's designated as the Father because this is him and his essential character. What God the Father wants you to do is to believe on his son and what the son has done for you. And when you've done that, you haven't loved the world. And when you've done that, 
You've overcome the world. You're in the light. You're not in the darkness. Just by simply believing and doing what the Father wants you to do, which is to believe on his Son. You see us? It's all the same. John's saying the same thing in many different ways. Have you done the will of the Father, brothers and sisters? Have you believed? If you have, then you're not loving the world. And will abide forever. That's good news. If you're afraid of dying, take comfort in this word. You'll abide forever. Forever means forever. We who were once in the world, who were once perishing, we who wouldn't have abided forever, we who were of the world, we who all bragged about life, we all spent our time in the lust of the flesh, we all had things that God didn't like about us, for God agaped us. He sent his son that we wouldn't perish, but yet we would abide forever. Such good news. So let's remember where we've come from. What that meant for us when we were in that place. Let's remember where we are now. If you're a Christian, you're in a place in the light where you'll abide forever. And let's remember how and why we went from one place to the other. It wasn't because you became a good person. It was because you overcame that system, that thought it's all about being a good person. And you believed that God agape you, considered you, had compassion and kindness and patience, and sought your good by sending his own son to die painfully on a cross for your sins. Amen. Let's pray.